It's been eight months since COVID-19 began its assault on American society. Many of us were sent home from work. All but essential businesses closed down. This fall, restrictions were eased, but now the virus is coming back with a vengeance, with illness rates matching those of this spring. It seems a long, dark winter of COVID awaits us. I'm Tom Vasich, and this is the UCI Podcast. Andrew Neumer is an epidemiologist in UCI's program in public health with a particular expertise on viral pandemics. He even wrote his PhD thesis about the great 1918 influenza. He has quickly risen to the top as an expert during this COVID-19 outbreak, and he continues to be interviewed by leading news outlets across the nation, including The Atlantic, CNN, the LA Times, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. If anyone knows about the future we face with COVID-19, it's Andrew. And he joins us on the podcast to offer his insights into how the next few months will shape up, what we can expect beyond that, and when COVID-19 will end. At the time we're recording this, 230,000 Americans have died from COVID. There are 9 million cases and probably more for reasons we'll discuss later. And the United States has 331 million residents. How can we interpret these numbers when we really have nothing to compare it to? Well, thank you for having me on, on this podcast. And I'll do my best to give you a frame of reference to understand you know, what these numbers mean. So sure. we have 230,000 deaths and counting from covid so far this year. It's gonna take a long time before we fully understand all the dimensions of COVID mortality. Those are deaths that have been reported as COVID deaths. Uh, we're gonna to have to compare at, uh, when we have all the final mortality statistics for the year, you know, how many deaths we see this year. But, and, and, and that takes time. It ta there's a, an enormous lag in mortality statistics. And here I'm not just referring to the fact that, that the deaths lag cases of COVID, I'm referring to the fact that it takes time for the National Center for Health Statistics to compile all the death certificates. And let me give your listeners an example of what I'm talking about here. Uh, the latest numbers that I've crunched have been through week 30 of 2020, and that is, uh, week, that is the end of July. And uh, according to the uh, 21st of October data dump from the National Center for Health Statistics, there was an excess mortality of about 150,000 deaths in the U.S. Uh, compared to what we would expect from previous trends. And then using the same data dump from one week later, 28th of October, and using the same time frame through the 30th week of, of the year, which is through the end of July, we see 400 more deaths. It, so even in late October, Going back to the end of July, week on week, we're seeing more deaths being reported because it just takes time. So we don't have a full perspective on the mortality impact of this pandemic yet. The other thing that your pod listeners are gonna want to know is that there are approximately 3 million deaths a year in the United States. The, uh, the population is, is, is uh, over 328 million and the uh, the crude death rate is about nine tenths of 1%. So there's a large number of deaths every year in the US. And 
these COVID deaths are, are going to be about a 10% increase over what's normal. So it's, that's a significant increase, but it's not, um, you know, a doubling or a tripling. And but so far, uh, there have been 9 million reported cases of COVID in the United States. And that's a little, that's a little below 3% of the population uh, getting COVID. Is that a lot? Uh, looking at it historically in your in your in an epidemiological way, uh, or or is this really a very very serious problem? Well, there's been nine million re recorded cases that uh, nine and nine million people have tested nine million unique individuals have tested positive according to you know uh, to COVID tests. So the true number is higher than that. It's anywhere from it will, the, the the multiplier will vary from place to place. It's anywhere from five to ten times higher than that because there were a lot there are a lot of asymptomatic cases and because particularly in the early days of the epidemic we weren't testing enough, so there are missed cases, and uh, nine million cases is uh, well it's I mean there's probably uh, closer to ninety million uh, and perhaps not quite that many uh, but. There's, there's very, there have been very many more infections than that, but it's, it's still a minority of the population uh, that has been touched by COVID yet, asymptomatically or symptomatically. And so, you know, your listeners have heard a lot about herd immunity, and uh, you know, it's important to understand we're not, we're not there yet. And uh, herd immunity is the point where the epidemic sort of just slows down to the point of. Of almost vanishing because uh, because so many people are already immune and that the, the disease has has nowhere to go so to say but we're not we're not there yet um, and uh, so we we're in for a uh, we're, we still have some tough sledding ahead of us well most of us have been at home since March because of covid uh, covid rates are increasing in the United States and also around the world which leads to this question, what are the next few months going to look like? How is this winter, what is this gonna be the winter of our discontent once again? It's a great question and, I'm, and there's lots of dimensions here. I mean, for, for restaurants, it might be uh, the, the winter of our, our dinner in a tent uh, because uh, that's what a lot of them are doing in terms of uh, outdoor seating. But what we have to understand is that, is that respiratory viral diseases are seasonal phenomenon with winter dominance. So um, our respiratory syntactyl virus, influenza, uh, common colds that are caused by rhinoviruses, common colds that are caused by the other four uh, coronaviruses and uh, measles even, these are viruses that are spread via the respiratory route. And, and these are all seasonal phenomenon with winter dominance. And coronavirus will be the same thing. It's gonna be a highly seasonal phenomenon. Now your listeners may be wondering, well, in California or, or wherever, wherever I am, there was a huge wave in the summer. So how can you say it's seasonal with winter dominance? The thing is, this virus is newly emerging. And when viruses are newly emerging, they, they see a population that's immunonaive. And so they, they kind of expand and they can break the rules and you know, have an outbreak in the summertime or whatever because of that immunonaivity of the whole population. But as uh, as we go towards endemicity, towards COVID being kind of in the background, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to become more like its normal self. That is to say, a seasonal phenomenon with winter dominance. And Europe is seeing second waves. And the United States 
uh, is seeing a patchwork of really different epidemiology, but the United States is seeing second wave. Massachusetts, for example, is certainly seeing a second wave right now as we're taping this at the end of October. And so, you know, it, the atmospheric conditions and the human behavior in the, in the wintertime, kids in school, people indoors, everything, just combines to make these diseases more transmissible in the, in the wintertime. And, you know, we kind of dodged a bullet by having this emerge in, uh, in, in early spring last year because we were in, heading into spring, the last days of winter, and then we were heading into deep spring and then summer and things were getting better. If, I mean, I, looking back, it, it may not seem that way because California had a shelter in place order and there was a big summer wave, but believe, believe me, it was, it was getting better from the seasonal perspective. And now we're in uh, mid fall heading into winter and it's gonna be a winter that begins with COVID among us. And in fact, COVID will be seeded in every major metropolitan area of the United States already, as opposed to coming here for the first time. So it's gonna be a, a long, difficult winter. Uh, you know, we, Yesterday we hit a record number of uh, COVID test positives in the US in the upper uh, Great Plains states. They're seeing huge uh, surges in, in, in COVID cases. So we are definitely in for, we need to steal ourselves for a, a very tough period. Um, President Trump has repeatedly said that we've turned the corner on COVID and that it'll eventually go away. And that raises this really important question. How do pandemics go away? That's, that's a great question. And I think the president is right that it will go away. Uh, and uh, depending on what one means by that. But uh, I, I would take issue with the idea that we've turned a corner. I, I think that's at best premature. And, uh, and certainly with, as I said yesterday, um, we had a record number of positive diagnoses. So uh, I, I wouldn't say you know, that I would call that turning a corner. How pandemics go away is a complicated question. Where I see this going is towards COVID endemicity. So we'll have, SARS-CoV-2 virus in circulation in the human population as an, at an equilibrium level after the pandemic phase is over. So, you, you know, it's not gonna be eradicated. So we're gonna be hearing something about COVID for decades to come. It won't be, you know, at the level of emergency that all of your listeners are hearing now, but COVID is not going to be completely vanquished. Um, Another point is that, you know, how do pandemics end? Well, you know, there are different pandemics and, and uh, not every disease outbreak is a pandemic. So, I mean, plenty of epidemics go away. Uh, your listeners will remember the, the so-called Disneyland outbreak of measles in 2014, which began at Disneyland, but which has now gone away. Uh, but the AIDS pandemic, for example, is, is, is called the pandemic or HIV AIDS as it's more properly described, is, is a pandemic and it hasn't gone away at all. It's still with us. So uh, pandemics don't necessarily go away per se, but they do evolve. And another really instructive thing to think about is the 1918 so-called Spanish influenza epidemic, which we've all heard a lot about by now because there are certain parallels with COVID. And it, that one did go away, uh, but it went away in its, in its, in its own way. In its own fashion. So the uh, the H1N1 flu virus that emerged in 1918, and which was different than the virus flu viruses that had been circulating before then, 
and which caused so many uh, problems. It just sort of evolved. Now, influenza is a famously uh, fast evolving uh, virus, but it just sort of evolved. And the, the H1N1 flu that was in circulation as the regular flu from 1919 up until 1956 was uh, descendants of that flu virus. So it, it just sort of faded away. It didn't burn out, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then in 1957, there was another flu pandemic in which a different type of flu virus, in this case, H2N2 came and that became the dominant flu virus and so dominant that the H1N1 virus vanished. Uh, but, so the, the 1918 flu pandemic in, in a sense lasted until 1956, but you don't hear about that because it was it evolved towards lower virulence. And so I do expect something similar to happen with, with this outbreak. We'll, we will have COVID for decades, but it won't be uh, killing people in the hundreds of thousands every, every year. Well, you mentioned earlier that the report, you know, the number of case, reported uh, cases of COVID is far fewer than what the actual reality is. And just this week, um, you, know, you know, your colleagues in public health released a study in which they tested a representative sample of 3,000 Orange County residents and discovered that nearly 12% of them carried the novel coronavirus antibodies. Uh, that's about seven times higher than than what has been believed to be the infection rate. Um, well, it suggests, like you said, that a majority of people who have COVID are symptomatic, experience weak symptoms, or just don't report it or don't get tested. Um, how does this change your, the interpretation of, of, of the novel coronavirus and, and how we should address it? That's a great question. And first of all, full disclosure, I, I am uh, involved in that in that st uh, study. Uh, and yeah. uh, although although not I'm not the uh, principal investigator and, and the uh, there's other people at, here at UC Irvine who have been uh, more principally involved in that in that work. But so I mentioned that it, it varies from place to place and that between five and 10 times as many people are in the total infections compared to overt uh, cases. And we see that here in Orange County based on the antibody study that UC Irvine conducted over the summer, uh, that the multiplier is, is seven times. And it's so important to collect these data to have uh, some sense of where we're at in terms of, you know, uh, you know, is, is Orange County, um, you know, much higher in total infections than we believe based on overt cases or is it closer to the number of revert cases? I mean, th this number will vary from place to place. And it, it's, it's really important for our, the science of the pandemic to understand where, where very many communities are at, including Orange County. And so we find that we're, about, we're at a, about a seven times multiplier. And another important reason to do this study over the summer and then to repeat it, hopefully this fall or winter, and then again in the spring, is we're, we're finding out now that antibodies fade. And that is not a great development because tip, very often antibodies are uh, a persistent immune response. Uh, however, fading antibodies uh, does not mean doomsday. It just means that the immune system will uh, rely on cellular immunity to fight uh, off reinfection. And I do believe that the science still shows that reinfection is very rare. So, but the fact that antibodies fade, so it's not doomsday from the point of view of we're all gonna get 
reinfected and reinfected and reinfected. But it, but it is um, creating a hurdle for those of us who want to study the properties of the epidemiology of the virus, because if, if ant when antibodies fade and we do another serosurvey, uh, some of those people will test negative and then we'll have to wonder, well, were they infected or were they not never infected? Were they, were they infected and they lost the antibody or were they never infected? And so having early data will really help us interpret the later data. Because if we, if we have again, 11% in, in a survey over the uh, winter, we now know because of antibody fate, it doesn't mean that it's reached a plateau. It means that people are churning in and out of antibody status. So I realize it's a little bit esoteric for, you know, for most people who don't um, spend all their time thinking about these di weird dynamics of epidemics, but it's really important for, that we collected early data, that we, that we collected data over the summer so that we can repeat it and, and map our way out of this pandemic. Right now, pretty much everybody in, uh, is pointing to the panacea of a vaccine, that this is going to solve the problem of the pandemic. But once a vaccine is approved, and we don't know when that's going to happen, uh, it'll take many, many months before the vaccine is widely available to everyone. And at least a third of Americans will refuse to take it. Um, well, th is that going to limit the vaccine's effectiveness in controlling the spread of the virus? Not at first, but in the long run, yes. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Yeah. So at, at first, um, there won't be enough vaccine doses for everyone in any case. And there will be priority lists, including first responders, people who work in hospitals, um, both healthcare professionals and, and other people who work in hospitals alike. And, and military. Then, uh, military, I'm sure, mm -hmm. and, and other, other people um, who are exposed to a lot of other people. So like, for example, teachers. And uh, you know, so there won't, there, I mean, it's, it's just a fact that, that uh, of the way lo vaccine logistics are particularly with some of these vaccines that require uh, storage at cold temperatures, that uh, we just won't have enough doses for everyone who wants one at first. So the fact that there are anti-vaxxers who, who will refuse the vaccine, I, I mean, fine, let them refuse it. We can just give it to people who want it. There won't be enough doses anyway. Yeah. And so um, I, I know uh, a lot of people have been really uh, concerned, is, is one way to put it about you know, the role that anti-vaxxers will play in, uh, in hamstringing our ability to respond to this epidemic. Um, and uh, I'm not trying to be a gadfly here, but the, the, for the first few months, it, the anti-vaxxers won't actually make a difference because there, there won't be enough mm -hmm. doses of vaccine anyway. Now, as the vaccine supply becomes uh, you know, better over months and months, it will make more and more of a difference because then we're going to be getting into a situation in which there is enough vaccine for everyone and some people will be refusing it. And the, the role that a vaccine can play in curtailing an outbreak is to push us over the herd immunity threshold that, you know, that your listeners have heard so much about. And, you know, if people are refusing, then, uh, and we remain below the herd immunity threshold, then it can sort of not only uh, ruin it for them, but it can, it can sort of ruin it for everybody, so to speak, because uh, the, the epidemic will continue. I'm optimistic. That, well, there's a couple of things to, 
there's a few things to bear in mind. First of all, um, the, the people who are, have survived infection, it, it may be hard to identify these people because of the antibody issues that I mentioned earlier, but people who have survived infection don't need uh, to be vaccinated, uh, we would assume, with, uh, with or without uh, their refusal. So uh, if, if some of the uh, vaccine refusers are people who've survived infection, they're probably a dead end for the virus anyway. They're probably immune anyway. So to that extent, we can just sort of skate by. And the fact that we will unfortunately have a lot of people in that situation, a lot of people who have survived natural infection, that combined with the people who are willing to take the vaccine, I'm hopeful will be enough to put us over the herd immunity threshold. Yeah. And so the people who, who refuse won't sort of ruin it for everybody. And then another- I've got a uh, question about herd immunity. What sure. is, is there, what is the, what's the, what's the point in which herd immunity becomes effective? What is well, there a percentage yeah. of the population that you know that determines how how the effective herd immunity is? Is it seventy percent, eighty percent, sixty percent? So, yeah, let, that's a that's a wonderful question. Let me just say also, uh, uh, I, I heard on a on a debate this, this morning about the the virus. A wonderful phrase: herd immunity is an outcome, not a strategy. So your listeners need to understand that herd immunity has been talked about and many times mischaracterized. I mean, herd immunity is this property in which once uh, a certain threshold of the population has been, uh, is, is already immune, that the epidemic dies out because the virus sort of has nowhere to go. And it doesn't need to be 100% of the population. The virus just sort of thrives off of bouncing from case to case to case. But when it bounces into an immune person, it's a dead end. And so you get this herd immunity and it's less than 100%. And and so the herd immunity uh, concept is a valid concept, but it's been it's been sort of dragged into the mud by this idea that we're just we, the, the best thing to do is nothing, and just let everyone get infected. And uh, and uh, I don't want Sweden tried that. Well, S S Sweden tried a flavor of it, and 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 the, uh, I mean it's become a vociferous debate about uh, you know everything yeah. basically. I just want the the listeners to the to the pod to understand that. Um, when, we, when we're talking about herd immunity, we're talking about a threshold value yeah. uh, that's going to be an outcome of this epidemic. And, and we're not talking about, oh, let's, uh, let's just do nothing. Um, but to answer the, the kernel of, of your question, uh, we, we actually don't know uh, what the herd immunity threshold is. It's something we're going to have to discover. I mean, we have some guesses, but it's, it, uh, it, it depends on what kind of model one assumes for how the population mixes with itself. And... Uh, and, and also, it is, it, the herd immunity threshold varies from pathogen to pathogen. So my guess is the herd immunity threshold will be 70% for this virus. It, it could be anywhere from 50 to 80%, in my opinion. Uh, yeah. I don't think it will be greater than 80%. There's been some work suggesting it will be much lower, around 40%. And that's based on purely on mathematical models. You know, we've been seeing that super spreader events can cause spikes in infection rates. I probably... The one that people think most about now is the uh, Sturgis motorcycle rally in in the Dakotas. I don't know. I forget whether it's south or north. And what we're seeing is in those re in that region of the country are the highest rates now. And there's been some correlation between that super spreader events and uh, and those rates. We're coming up on New Year's Eve, which is the ultimate super spreader event. Well, what are the best approaches to take? First of all, I want to ask you what you're going to do on uh, uh, 
New Year's Eve. I'm sure you'll be at home. Uh, but I mean, what, if, what should what should we do? I mean, it's easy enough to say stay at home, but that's not how people really function. Uh, yes, yeah, so that's a great question. And and before New Year's Eve, there's uh, there's uh, Thanksgiving and 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 the uh, and the winter religious holidays as as well. I intend to to stay home and uh, enjoy the uh, the New Year. You know, e- either by m- by myself or with you know pe- a select few people who who I'm sort of, you know, impotting with, so to, so to say, you know, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a pandemic and uh, you, you know, it's going to mean that we're all going to have to uh, change our behavior and, and make sacrifices. I mean, the, the sacrifices that we're going to have to make involuntarily in the form of cases and deaths are going to be a lot greater than missing out on a new year's Eve party. And so, yeah. I mean, I just think, you know, that's just, uh, we're going to have to do the holidays different this year. I mean, I have, I have said, you know, I, Thanksgiving uh, can be done. Um, that the best practice would be to to have Thanksgiving as a nuclear family event this year, as opposed to a large gathering. If certain precautions are taken, I, I don't think uh, I, I would go so far to say thou shalt not, you know, go to Thanksgiving dinner. But but I, I would definitely say best practice is to have Thanksgiving with our households, our regular households. Well, I got one last question for you, and I'm sure you're asked this question a lot. Uh, what can we do to limit our exposure to the virus? Well, so um, masking, as as your listeners have all heard about by now, is is really something that can work. And I mask myself, you know, whenever I leave the, the house. So it's it's not something that I, you know, it's I, it's something that I can tell your listeners in. in easily to do in good faith because it's something I do myself. And, you know, a mask provides a barrier. So they're not a hundred percent, you know, uh, we're not going outside in some sort of, uh, you know, diving bell, you know, they are not completely hermetically sealed from the rest of the world, but they provide a barrier. So the particles being exhaled have to go through the mask and particles being inhaled have to go through the mask. So there's less spreading when people mask. So if, if, if someone is sick and they go to the grocery store and they breathe out or they sneeze, they sneeze into the mask and other people at the grocery store have to, those particles have to cross the mask barrier before uh, they inhale them. And so it, it just provides a level of protection. It reduces the uh, R naught of the virus and it, and it reduces the herd, therefore the herd immunity threshold. And it's just, it's the most basic thing that we can all do um, I think a, a reasonable amount of hand hygiene is a, a, is a good move, uh, but um, there's no need to obsess about surfaces. Uh, uh, you know, in, in, in March, there was a lot of uh, actions that were taken out of an abundance of caution because we know the virus can, in theory, persist on surfaces. So people were doing things like washing their groceries, uh, you know, when, as soon as they got home. and. As you say, it takes these super spreader events like Sturgis to a uh, motorcycle rally to really, you know, to get these large scale transmission events. If every Kroger's was a super spreader event, we would know by now. And mm-hmm. so there, there's no need to, um, you know, to pick up a can of corn that you got at the grocery store and, and, and steam sterilize it as soon as you get home. I mean, so just as far as surfaces go, a reasonable amount of hand hygiene is, is fine. But the real big deal is, is the masks. 
All right, well, uh, thank you, Andrew. This was really uh, informative and I'm glad you joined us to talk about, uh, I guess, the next phase of COVID in the United States and the rest of the world. Thank you. It's my pleasure to talk to your listeners and to, I'll look forward to joining you in the future. Thank you, Andrew. The UCI podcast is a production of UCI Strategic Communications and Public Affairs. Thank you for listening.